Welcome to Generation Ag, a podcast for the future of agriculture. I'm Kayla. And I'm Lavinia. And we're a couple of young Aggies passionate about celebrating our industry and sharing the stories of people who work in it. Welcome back to our third episode of this special series in partnership with the Southern Rangeland Pastoral Alliance and the Future Drought Fund. The WA Southern Rangelands encompasses all of the land area south of the Pilbara, excluding the agricultural zone of the Southwest Land Division. The Southern Rangeland Pastoral Alliance was formed to provide leadership and support for sustainable pastoral production and diversification in the Southern Rangelands. This is our final instalment from our three-part series, and in this episode, we talk about the harsh reality of having a station in the Midwest currently. We visit Ewan and Gabion Station in this episode, which highlight the big issues of wild dogs and destruction that they have caused. We first got to meet Gemma of Gabion Station, who introduced us to her Marema sheepdogs, which she has used to drastically decrease the wild dog problem on her station. You know, even though we are both quite emerged in agriculture, I think neither of us really realised how bad the wild dog problem was until we got up there and saw it for ourselves and Gemma really opened up and, you know, she was so honest with the fact that, you know, until they introduced these sheepdogs to help support their livestock, they really weren't having good seasons at all. I have to echo that. That's That rung true for me as well. I like to think I listen to what's going on in the industry, but I think this is an issue that's not talked about enough. And until you see it firsthand and you talk to these pastoralists about just how it's destructive, but it's devastating. It is life altering for these people. They aren't able to make money with the amount of wild dogs and feral animals there are around. I think we'll let this episode part speak for itself when Gemma talks and she can go into the details and she's really going to go very in depth. So we'll get into that and hopefully you all enjoy. So Gemma, thank you so much for letting us come to your property and see what you're doing. The first question we'd like to ask is just for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your property. Yeah, okay. Gemma Cripps and we're on Gabion Station here today and my mum Helen and I run the station and yeah, we were originally definitely a sheep station but in the past couple of years we've had to move into cattle so that's been a very big change for us but something that we're enjoying so yeah, just sheep and cattle. And can you tell us the capacity and size and exactly where we are located in Australia, but also in Western Australia? Okay, so Western Australia, we're two hours east of Geraldton and 40 kilometres west of Yalgu. And the property is 670,000 acres. Yeah, just casually. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for showing us around this morning, Gemma. It's been fantastic. Maybe talk to us a bit about, because you only bought the station not that long ago. Talk to us about the journey to purchasing, but also what it was like when you got here and sort of how it's changed over the years. Yeah, okay. So we bought Gabby on in 2009. Prior to that, we were wheat and sheep farmers, always from around the Geraldton area. Um, Mum and dad were originally from Northampton and we moved to Inneaba for 20 years and then came back to Geraldton where we were running a livestock export feedlot. And 
yeah, while we were there, we sort of wanted to buy something else that we could start running additional numbers. So at that stage, we were all Damra sheep. And yeah, we moved out to Gabion to try and increase our flock size and to give us more scope. So yeah, that was our reason for moving out here. Talk to us about the journey since arriving. You know, you were telling us before about um, the live shutdown and sort of you know, necessarily not the perfect storm occurring after you got here and then the journey you've been on since then to build your flock back up. Yeah, so it's definitely been a journey, that's for sure. Running the livestock export depot until 2012, we thought everything was going great, but then when all that shut down, yeah, it just got hard. Yeah, we had to sort of move off station and do other jobs. And then when the dingoes started to come in, yeah, it really put a huge impact on our sheep business. And that's why, yeah, in the past few years, it's really been a struggle keeping things moving. The carbon carbon industry has been a huge saviour for us. So hopefully moving forward, that will help get everything back on track. But yeah, the Marema dogs have definitely been a game changer for us in the last two years. The dog issue is going to be a problem that's going to be around for a long time. So it just seems very ironic that we can use dogs to help us save dogs. (laughs) Um, Gemma, set the scene for us. Maybe for someone who's listening to this, very unfamiliar with the rangelands and the issues that you have with wild dogs. Like what, just what is the issue and at what scale is it affecting your business? It is affecting our business 100%. The scale of it is a huge problem. So on the 670,000 acres, when we first arrived in 2009, we had 8,500 sheep spread over the whole property and they were just run in a set stock situation. But as the dog problem, the dingoes, started to become a problem from sort of 2015 onwards, we were losing anything from 25% of the flock a year. So obviously our stock numbers dwindled very quickly, but because of the price of sheep and introducing new sheep into the rangelands, the scale of our paddocks, you know, most paddocks are between 15 to 20,000 acres. So if you bring sheep from the ag industry and bring them up to pastoral, it just doesn't work. Yeah, you know, southern sheep just can't handle moving up here. So the problem we were facing was we had to try and maintain the flock we had because if we were introducing new sheep, it just didn't work. So yeah, trying to maintain that flock when it was being decimated every year to that percentage, you know, 25% is a huge loss to anyone. And then not getting the lambs each year to continue on, it was really difficult. And that's why sort of the cattle introduction was so important also, just to keep the cash flow going. But yeah, now... I mean, it's just impressive that these maremmas can handle such big acreage. And as you ladies have found out today, finding them's not that easy. <laughs> yeah, they they're spread over such huge areas, but they're doing an amazing job. Jamie, you just touched on sort of the financial element. Can you go into a little bit more detail? Not only that, but sort of pre-introduction of the dogs. What was sort of the scale? Obviously. We've we haven't actually spoken about, but you guys have been dealing with a lot over the last 10 years. Can you sort of just paint a picture of what it's been like? You know, you guys are facing drought, pre-COVID, employment issues. What has it been like just on a, you know, yearly basis trying to manage the station to keep surviving for the next year? Yeah, well, I suppose up until 2012, things were going along really well. You know, we were able to hire staff and everything was great. But that period from 2012 to 2015, we had no income whatsoever for two years. 
So, yeah, that was really tricky. During that time, we ended up having to close up two of the properties that we had to keep us financially okay here. We had all decided that we wanted to stay on Gabion. And then, yeah, so 2015, yeah, it was just really tough. The station stay became a very big part of our business. And if it hadn't have been for the station stay, we probably would have been in a fair bit of trouble. And help from backpackers. We were very much reliant on the backpackers travelling around to help as our workforce because we just couldn't afford to pay people. So that was a really great part of the situation. We got to meet a lot of amazing young people travelling and yeah, with some of our best friends now are still those people that we met along the way. But financially getting from year to year was a complete struggle. So yeah, now that was very, very difficult. But with COVID starting, the station stay pretty much stopped for 12 months. So that was a real kick again, because then that was that income gone. But on the flip side of that, 21 was the best station stay year we've had since we've been running, because there were so many people traveling at home. And so yeah, that was a real lifesaver for the station. It gave us that income. And yeah, we got to meet a lot of lovely new people and get to show them what we do. Yeah. Speaking of what you do, I think we've sort of touched on the Maremmas already, but let's go back to the decision to bring the Maremmas onto the farm and just how that journey has gone fully implementing them into the station business. So yeah, 2019, we'd been continuing down the path of trying to keep the sheep. We started our cell grazing system. We put in 21 kilometres of eight line ring lock and had the sheep in that paddock for that year. We started off with over 800 ewes at the beginning of 2019 and when we went back to muster in September, we had 625 sheep left and our lambing for the year was 17. So we were very much at the stage where we were just about ready to quit and give up on sheep because it was just heartbreaking. But luckily at that stage, we had cattle here that we were learning how to manage and operate (laughs) and yeah we were fortunate enough to do a quick mustering trip up to Glenfollory station and Tisha's using Maremma dogs up there and that was our very first introduction so in 20 we got our first four beautiful little eight-week-old pups (laughs) and an an older pair of dogs um, to start our Maremma journey And yeah, within sort of six months, those four pups were going, yeah, bonding very well. We had to spend a good six months bonding those first pups with their sheep. And because of the way the season was in 20, we also had calves in the yards that we were bonding the dogs with too. So these first um, original dogs are bonded with sheep, goats and cattle. So they're a bit (laughs) varied, but they seem to be enjoying the journey. And when we finally let them out, yeah, they did a great job. And last year, we, yeah, we still did lose 8% of those ewes, but we ended up with 65% lambing. So that was just an amazing outcome for such young dogs. So yeah, we're pretty much hooked now. That's massive. I mean, proof of concept for you guys, but what a relief, like we were talking before about the trouble in not being able to maintain the generations of herd on the station for the years to come because, like, as you said, bringing in other sheep is just just not an option. For people who are toying with the idea of, of Maremmas or another alternative breed for protecting the flock, like, what, what advice would you have? What learnings have you had along the way? 
Um, yeah, well, it's definitely a big learning. I think for people with reasonable acreage, I think these dogs are just an amazing thing. They're definitely not for your little backyards unless you know the breed because they're definitely quirky. They sometimes want to pat, sometimes they don't. And the biggest issue with them is their guarding instinct kicks in with whatever it is they're doing. And the main way they do that guarding is by barking. So yeah, if you're on a small property and your neighbours don't like dogs barking, please don't go there. (laughs) However, if you're on bigger acreage and, you know, with sheep being worth so much money now and with all the free range chickens, I believe there's a um, few, you know, people using maremmas with chickens and they're doing a great job also. Yeah, they're just a very environmentally friendly way of securing and looking after your livestock. So, yeah, it'd be really great with sheep being worth so much now if these dogs can sort of get a bit more common like our good old Kelpies. I think that'd be amazing. For someone who doesn't quite understand the amount of feral dogs and the problem, can you just explain in a little bit more detail about why it's so important to have these maremmas on your property and why it's important to cull the feral dogs? Okay, so in a pastoral situation, the hardest thing to sort of get your head around up here is just the scale. So in a lot of situations, the wild dogs will misplace the stock. So you've got a mob of sheep in a paddock that's, say, 15,000 acres, and you can't really see those sheep very often. And the biggest issue is you go back for mustering, you know, you'll be driving around and seeing a few sheep here and there. But when you go back to muster, those sheep that should be there have been pushed away and they will then perish due to lack of water. So the um, animal welfare issues that the dingoes create by misplacing sheep and then the actual dog bites. We have a mob of sheep around our house now that are entirely made up of sheep that have been bitten by dingoes and we need to be treating with antibiotics regularly, otherwise they will die. And so the dingoes are just completely decimating the sheep industry in this pastoral region. And prior to having the maremmas, how were you managing the feral dog problem? We were trying to manage it through lots of ground baiting and also the trapping and That was definitely working to a certain degree. They're all important tools to be able to manage this problem. But because we, yeah, we have another neighbour that's running sheep also and they're using um, electric fencing as a bit of a, a tool. But the problem is so large that if you can't keep on top of it, the baiting and the trapping just wasn't enough. So that's where by having these maremmas that actually live in the mob with the sheep 24-7. They're there on hand when something goes wrong. So, yeah, they are really the only way that they can be on site to keep on top of it because, yeah, your baiting will get the older dogs and the pups, but the run of the mill dogs are too clever and the trapping is a lot of work. So trying to cover the area you need to to have those traps where they need to be that's a big job. And it's near on impossible in some of this country, right? You can't put traps everywhere you would want to put traps. Certainly a conversation we were having when we visited Maine. And expensive. I imagine cost effective having the maremmas as well. Yeah, definitely. You, you look at the diesel price at the moment. To be driving around the extent you need to drive around to put traps 
house in efficiently. It's not an easy job. You know, when I was doing the dogging myself before our dog, our full-time dogger came in, you know, you're spending a week, a month easily yourself just checking. And then once the traps are in the ground, the trapping is just so hard. So the Maremmas are, we set up feeding stations for them and they pretty much look after themselves. So they also then help with the grazing pressure in the paddocks from the ferals because they help to chase the kangaroos away and all of those other things that also graze the paddocks and cause damage. The marimas help with that also. So it's a double win. They're looking after your stock, but they're also pushing away that grazing pressure. So yeah, financially, it's a really good balance. When you're looking towards the future and what you guys are going to implement over the next couple of years, obviously we've been out and about, we've seen that there's rain around and it's a good sign for a good season. What is it that you're planning on for the future of your station, but also what is your hope for the future of agriculture, particularly as a pastoralist? Yeah, you're right. It is actually beautiful to see it so green at the moment and the season's setting up to be a ripper one. So yeah, our our goal moving forward would be to keep introducing sort of new cell paddocks each year and moving the the sheep around and hopefully getting to a stage where we can be running sort of 5,000 sheep again and running the cattle in conjunction so that we can maximise our land that's not sort of suitable for the carbon farming with the sheep and then protect the land that we need to be protecting with the cattle. So yeah, moving forward, it's very much just making the most of the the carbon that we have so that we can buy infrastructure and facilities to keep everything moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Just give a quick plug, if someone wants to come and do the station stay, you know, how's the best way to go about that? Yeah, well, if anyone wants to stay, we have a Facebook page and a website that people can log on to. We're more than happy for people to come and camp and have a look around the property and see what we do. And yeah, we offer trail rides and all sorts of things, but it's just a great way for people who haven't been onto a pastoral property before to come and see how we how we live. That's fantastic. And you also share quite a bit about the Maremmas as well. You have some content. Yeah, definitely. So when people are here, hopefully if they're having a bit of a drive around, they might get to see the dogs in action doing their work. Yeah, fantastic. Gemma, thank you so much for your time. We've been having the best morning this morning here and getting to meet the dogs and and go on a hunt for some sheep, which we have been unable (laughs) to find. But I appreciate you showing us around and for being such a willing podcast guest as well. No worries. Thank you very much for your time. And our last station, it was certainly not least, we met Emma, Roscoe, Tom, the Folks Taylor family at Ewan, which has got four generations living there. They have actually developed their own dog-proof fence. Mm-hmm. This, again, such a fantastic visit and thank you to them for their incredible hospitality. What a picturesque location, but not it didn't just happen that way. This family have... They love living there and you can just tell the sense of family and love that exists on Ewan Station. Oh, they are passionate. They're passionate about their region. They're passionate about country living. They're passionate about forward thinking and business opportunities. And this was such a, I think, a well-rounded last episode. 
and last story to share as part of our episode series. And I think it's really going to be empowering for people to hear this. And yeah, it's kudos to them for having such generational love on this property. And yeah, it was really special way to end for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think what they've done on their station to try and control the wild dog problem, I don't think they could have done what they've done without that sort of love for their land and their love for their community and just the way that they've set themselves up to be able to make the investment because it was a massive investment into building this fence to control this problem, which again has massive benefits for for the wider community too. Mm, Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Welcome to the podcast. There's five of us sitting around this table, which is an absolute treat. So I might get you all just to introduce yourselves very quickly so the listeners can identify whose voice is whose. Okay. Well, Roscoe will start off. I'm Roscoe. I'm about 56 or 7. Is that right, Emma? Yeah, about that. And yeah, I'm a third generation person living at Ewan Station in the Southern Merchant with my family, a couple of who will introduce themselves now. And I'm Emma Folkes-Taylor and married to Roscoe. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Tom, son of Emma and Roscoe, and uh, I live here with my wife and young children. And do you guys also want to give us a bit of the scope of how many generations who's actually here in total? Uh, My grandfather, Michael, is here. He, um, He first came here in the 50s and my nan recently died, so he has moved into our shearer's quarters, he doesn't want to go anywhere else. Then, of course, there is mum and dad here who have been here since the mid-80s. And then, yeah, I was born here and we've got two children, yeah, the youngest being two years old and then my younger brother Henry, he and his wife also live here and they've got a youngest as well who is one. Amazing. So, Roscoe, maybe you want to take us back to the beginning or and talk a little bit about your decision to be in agriculture and how you decided that you obviously wanted to come back and continue the generation and sort of where the station's at. I always hoped that there might be an opportunity to stay in the semi-arid, you know, rangelands and Ewan because enjoyed it as a, as a my childhood was great. Away at boarding school for a few years, working in Perth for, for a year or two around Australia for a year or so and a bit of contract work around but yeah things just worked out that there was room for us here uh, for me here I was with Emma from a young age about we we got together at the end of high school and she still hasn't seen the light so that's that's uh, <laughs> which is really good and um so we were a good team and yeah we just started working on a on the outstation which is tardy this property was a half million acres so just nudging 200,000 hectares and there was two Two homesteads, as there often was, and we went to the other homestead called Tardy, and we ran that side of the property and did the mills, and yeah, it just seemed a sort of fairly natural thing to do. I never presumed it, but it just became apparent, and my siblings had other different interests. My younger brother did end up with his wife and family up on the property north of here, Twin Peaks, but they worked out that wasn't for them after a while, and they they, they moved on, but Emma and I have stuck it out, and we love it. Yeah, we've had good and bad times, but... We are very attached to this to this part of the world and sort of the industry, but we do a lot of different things now, which we'll talk about shortly. So, yep, but agriculture on the property was always something I hope we'd end up doing. Yeah. You just talked about, I suppose, the size, but maybe talk to us about what are you running, how much stock are you keeping here at the moment, are you at capacity, where are you at, are you destocked like a lot of other people around the area? 
No, we aren't. No, we um we ran we shore around between nineteen and twenty four thousand a year through the nineties. You needed about that many sheep to get enough wool at about two dollars twenty a kilo to um <laughs> I don't know to survive. Anyway, we were a two hundred thousand hectare property with twenty thousand sheep. Basically, that adjusted to about a three three hundred thousand acre or. 135,000 hectare property when Emma and I decided we didn't want to sort of, we didn't want to have that many eggs in one basket and should we should we follow agriculture, we'll do it a bit smaller scale. So we sold a bit of country to calm it was back then in about 2000, 2001 and two. the deal went through and we ran about 10,000 to 13,000 merinos on 130,000 hectares. And today, we took a, a choice back in 2003, four to head towards uh, meat sheep which was Dorpers at the time. A lot of people say to us, oh, glad to see the back end of Merinos and this and that and, you know, whatever. There's some pretty unsavoury terms like mega taxis and so on and you had trouble getting shearers or stuff. No, no, we had none of that. They were a fine animal for a long time for us and they grew fine wool, well, fine as in a description and, and fine micron-wise and we were very happy with our operation but with all these exotic sheep, as they were called, turning up around the area, we couldn't really sustain that and keep on because we would have got a lot of, you know, there's a bit of cross-pollination in pastoral country, a couple of percent every year, and, and that would just knock us flat. So right today, back to your question, we have uh, between uh, about 2,700 ewes on these 130,000 hectares, which is about a third of what we could have with the amount of feed we got at the moment, but there's another part of that equation too we'll talk to you about. So we're about a third stocked, but quite happy at that. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that decision to have off-station income and where that comes from and what you've sort of diversified in? The start was that as a family, we always had interest in in other stuff around. You you guys would come across it in different industries. People get very proud of what they do and say the farming industry might look at a road worker and say, oh, what a buffet standing there doing nothing or a person building a pavement or whatever else. It's for other people to judge it. We were always quite open-minded about what went around. There is a bit of mineral activity on this place. There's a band of greenstone, for those that know a bit of geology, that runs north of the homestead several kilometres and down finishes at Talarang Peak, 100 kilometres away. So there's always been geological exploration around here. So we became a bit involved with that as a kid. I remember, you know, my parents welding up the axle of a Land Rover on some geo that had been somewhere they shouldn't, ranging through to my brother going off into the drilling industry to, to, to work for several years. We bought an old rig when the Marbo decision combined with low coal prices had put a real scare through the exploration industry. When I say the Marbo decision, no one knowed, knew what was happening. You know, there was rumours on the street that everyone was going to be not allowed to do this, not allowed to do that, and obviously time has showed that they work through it practically and you, and you move on forward. We bought an old rig at that, at that time, a drilling rig, and so drilling became a part of what Emma and I did. Exploration at first and then water boring. And we've got a loader at the moment and a couple of diggers, Tom and Julia, run their business. A couple of diggers, we have Henry on here who's now a plumber and gas fitter and he and his wife Jess run that. So it just sort of naturally morphed. We took it from the, oh, maybe it's a bit wanky and cliche, we did not invest big and come in with shiny gear and say, here we are, what can we do? We took a conservative approach of using what gear we had and bought maybe a little bit better gear here and there and our expertise and we worked in these different industries, you know, whether it be concrete or exploration or drill pads or, yeah, it just sort of naturally morphed and got bigger, combined with getting a few kicks in the guts with wool prices and, and when there's a few lean years rather than hanging your head too much, you, we, we were very quick to get rid of our stock, we like to think we were, and that gave us a bit of time and so we 
had a bit of opportunity on our doorstep. Yes, we don't advertise. We don't gloat about that. We just seem to, if you do your job properly in this country, mm. word of mouth gets around, the phone rings again, you put in a competitive price and you are asked back. It is not much more complicated than that. And I think it really contributes as well to, you know, embedding ourselves in the region. I mean, we've been, I think, pretty overwhelmed this morning walking around here at just how much this is home. Like, you guys don't just come up to the station, manage a few sheep and then head back to Perth. You're really embedding yourselves in the community. And maybe, Emma, that's something you can speak to about, you know, how your family is really... Yeah, I guess made yourselves part of the community here, you know, the four generations of you now on the farm and and I guess how at home you feel here. Well, obviously I wasn't born here, but I love this country and this place as much as, equally as much as Roscoe and Tom, I'm sure. The family came here in 1928. Roscoe's grandparents were here in 1928. So our grandchildren are fifth generation on the place, which is a bit special. Anyway, it was just, yeah, Roscoe's mum was a really keen gardener and, and that's something that I've always loved. And so, you know, we've built, you know, from that base of, you know, lovely trees and lawn and we've sort of expanded that into fruit trees and, and whatnot. And so gardening is one of my big passions and it's also really important to create a nice environment to live in because it can be our climate can be quite brutal in summer and it's a really nice oasis so it's something that we value really highly and I'm fortunate to have a husband that values that sort of thing and having a nice surrounding and so on as much as I do and yes Roscoe and I are very involved in the community we're both on the Shire and we've we've always been very much part of you know heavily involved in community groups and whatnot and it's all just, you know, part of creating a nice life. Tom, I want you to tell us a little bit about what you guys have been facing over the last couple of years because obviously we're here to talk about your small stock and the feral animal problem. Can you tell us a little bit about overall what you guys have been facing over the last couple of years with the feral dogs? Yeah, right. So I pursued other interests post-school yeah. and came back here about, I think, four or five years after and... Right at that same time, we basically were forced out of stock, which was not a, you know, you just start your sort of mid to early 20s and it felt a bit like the rugs pulled out from under you. It wasn't really what I thought I'd signed up for at the time, but I thought, you know, we'll give it a go. And it turned out that being forced into pursuing off-station income, it, it did enable us to have the cash flow basically to put back into the station enough to, you know, we had the funds and the resources to and the equipment to build our own cell fence around the property. We've always been a little bit inclined to go things our own. Mm -hmm. Like people people often say, oh, isn't there government funding and for that sort of thing? But, you know, we really didn't want to be committed to you know, or beholden to government or neighbours or yeah. relying on others to fix their section. Yeah. So, you know, we, we worked hard and spent a number of, you know, hours away from the place to basically allow us to spend more here later, yeah. if you like. We, we tried a few different styles. We did lap wire, but that didn't work too well. We've got a lot of salt country and the wire doesn't last when it's touching the ground. And we experimented with outriggers, off-the-shelf outriggers for to have a hot wire around 
um, outside ring lock, and that worked well. But with feral animals, emus, roos, work it pretty hard, and um, they, that was, it was suffering a bit of damage. So we ended up designing our own. Basically, it's a short poly post yeah. with a cyclone gate clip to hold the wire on, which is and tech screwed in, which is it's a bit unusual. But a few people said, "Oh, it won't work." You know, there's carbon in the poly; it'll it, it won't work. It'll leak electricity, but we thought, oh, we'll give it a go, and it's it seemed to be economic, and it worked, so we pushed on. Yeah. I mean, we can't afford to do an enormous 1,300 high 12-line ring lock fence here like you can in the Queensland pastoral country because while we, can, we could run 10,000 sheep on 130,000 hectares potentially, they can run 20,000 on 50,000 hectares, so... The economy of building something like that just it just it just doesn't stack up. So we had to sort of find an economic way to get a lot of miles of boundary fence that would more or less be enough to stop, if not drastically reduce, the flow of wild dogs. Yeah. Hmm. Talk to us maybe in numbers whether you know how's the fence paying off uh, in terms of the diminishing loss. What's the outcome been? Well, the, the outcome has been, we can't give you too many figures yet. We've got about a 162 kilometres around our boundary, or say 160. And um, yeah, it was around 4,000 a K, so it's not really hard to calculate. That's a bit over 600 it cost us. But that was our choice. We didn't put our hand out for us and we just got stuck into it. As far as numbers goes, what it means now is that we can handle a mob like you saw this morning. We put out 20 rams, we've got 18 back. Well, that's that's a very good start. And... We'll, we'll see what the lambing comes over only lambs, but we are marking lambs again. Uh, we're up in the high 60s every six months for, for a couple of mobs we've had up north of here about 10 kilometres, and that's quite heartening. It means you can run your 3,000, oh, well, let's just call it a 3,000 U operation productively, and that's all. No, it probably won't pay off for about a decade, but there's more to life than dollars and cents when you can live in a beautiful spot. Yeah. We can run a small amount of sm- small stock units you know, producing a good bit of meat along with our contracting, along with a carbon project was also entered into. So with those three ways of income, we, we reckon it'll be half all right. Yeah, and I suppose it's the cost of not doing it, right? Oh, it is. And, you know, we're not that important in the scheme of the world, but we like to think a couple of thousand lambs a year do a very good job at pitching in and um, yeah, feeding, feeding more and making a few bob for us, yeah. Yeah, and what about um, maintenance? Like how much time are you going to spend working on it? Yeah, well, we're under no illusion that, you know, almost no dog fence is perfect, but the last year has showed us that as long as the dogs are at a low level, you can still tick along and, you know, sell a, a reasonable number of lambs. Maintenance-wise, it, it is, it, it's ongoing. Firstly, we've had to start spraying our boundary because the hot wire is only 30 centimetres above the ground and, you know, a good winter weeds will quickly take over if you don't keep them under control. So that's been a learning curve for us. Luckily, we've got a few friends in farming who've seemed to know how to kill everything. <laughs> um, and then, of course, creek crossings, heavy summer rain, we do have to get out pretty quickly and keep on to things should there be a bit of fence flattened by water or, or the like, which goes back to not wanting to rely on government contractors, neighbours, anything. Not that I'm sh- we've got good neighbours, but you just that peace of mind to, yeah. you just need that really. It's it's such a big deal that we have to be responsible for it and, and keep on to it. 
Roscoe, we've had a little conversation out in the paddock, but I'd love for, I mean, your paddock's very different to ours, but I'd love for you to chat a little bit more about the carbon farming and how you guys have been able to implement that in and what that really has meant for you guys as a station. Or Emma, yeah, tell us, what has this allowed you guys to be able to do? Well, it hasn't, we haven't actually got any money from it yet, so <laughs> we're waiting for that, but hopefully it's not far away. So the, the carbon farming is an adjunct. We, we reckon that we've been looking after this country pretty well and that, you know, we can be rewarded for, for keeping our numbers low and we are, you know, definitely it's been really, once you know what to look for, it's been really exciting actually to... To when you're riding around mustering to see all the little trees and whatnot. So when we do get some income from carbon, we'll be reinvesting that back into looking after the country in terms of, you know, doing rehydration works and that sort of thing. I just wanted to say a couple of things about the carbon. We as a family stood aside for several years because there was um, various... They weren't snake oil salesmen, but they're not far off it, coming around over the last five years, flogging different things and giving big figures. And we weren't arrogant or cocky and said, oh, no, no, we're above that. No, no, we just kept our eyes out. About a year or two ago, it seemed a bit more practical and logical to work into our, our low-stocking regime we wanted to go forward with. And now, as a family, we are taking it very seriously. And when I say that, there's a bit of stuff in the media of late about, oh, yeah, it's a fraud or this or that, whatever else. But our family is being quite dinkum and we have done things like, you know, pulling up in the last year or two, pulling up a couple of mills, moving them, moving some fences, backing off our stock numbers. You saw the amount of feed around today. We could have 10,000 ewes and they'd all, you know, have their feed in their belly by about nine in the morning. It's a heap of feed, but we're going to go lightly on the stock. Uh, we're going to move our, yeah, move our animals around a bit more and hopefully get, get a few bob from carbon along the way because obviously there's been a bit of discussion in the media about it and I think both people are a bit sort of far, too far on their own relative sides, whether it be someone spruiking how marvellous it is or whether it being an academic saying it's a crock of shit and it's not going to work. But there's been a bit of commentary. One of the comments that really got under my skin was there was a, a learned scientific person who said in one of the interviews on the 730 Report or whatever, oh, it's all just about the rain that falls. Well, what a bloody ignorant comment that is. It is so much not about... I mean, 50 mils is not 50 mils. It all depends on how your country, you know, receives and retains and uses that moisture. We reckon if, if you look after the country well and it's in reasonable shape, what rain falls stays in the country and does its work. It's just so obvious to see. You see someone standing next to a, a muddy, raging little creek about as rich, rich red as a chocolate cake, well... That's just roaring off with heaps of topsoil. That'll get us now and again with bad flood events. We're not all suddenly marvellous. But overall, the colour of our runoff water is improving every, every year. And look, I can sit here now, it's a very good year and it looks good out there and you think, oh, what marvellous managers we are. But for those that know the country, even during a bad run of years, you can look out and know that it's in reasonable shape. You know, it's just there's a bit of, there's mosses in the soils, there is debris, there's perennial plants almost pulled up but not dead the way they do in dry years, all ready to go. And if you can do that, oh, the rain that falls is so much more effective. And we like to think the carbon project is a way of giving us a few bob for being so passionate about that. So bully for us. It's not going to make or break us, but hopefully it joins in yeah. and acknowledges what we're doing, yeah. Yeah. Roscoe, when you think about the future of you and station, what does that look like? 
I have to pinch myself every day about how lucky I am to live in a place. I have a meal on the a good feed every night. That's not me, by the way. That's 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 Emma's a master. <laughs> Sorry, Emma. I won't go on about how good you are. <laughs> I get very well looked after. Look, we've got family here. We're getting on reasonably well, and you know we're not getting shot at or. We're not hungry. Goodness me, it looks like a property where you can have a family that raises and if the kids choose to stick on the way it looks like they might, that'll be fantastic. It looks like a very good place to live to me. Yeah. Fantastic. What about for you, Tom? Yeah, well, obviously, being in my early 30s and I've chosen to have a family here, I, I have, yeah, quite a lot of faith in the in the place. Yeah. I Obviously, there's going to be good and bad and generally it's, it's looked after my previous generations for the last you know 90 years so keep busy and stick at it and it ends up all right so I can't see too many downsides really. And for you Emma as well? Look I you know a bit like Roscoe the the older I get the more lucky I feel to I mean it's so special to have this place which is you know with a strong family history and to have our children and grandchildren here and you know it just doesn't get any better than that to me yeah absolutely I agree I think that's a beautiful place Oscar's been running around it's what a what a snapshot of life here at UN Station in a really beautiful season thank you guys so much for having us out to visit it's been a delightful chat and we appreciate it so much no worries thank you Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Generation Ag. We hope you loved it. If you did, don't forget to visit our guest bios page on our website where you can get all of their contact information. And if you have an idea for another guest in the future or a story that you want to hear, you can get in touch with us via our email, which is hello at generationag.com.au. Don't forget to follow us on our socials at generation.ag. That's Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And if you've loved this episode as well, you can share it with your friends on your socials and make sure to subscribe to us on the podcast app and leave us a review because that all really helps as well. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.